I am a firm believer that the greatest way to preach the Word of God as a pastor is to take a book of the Bible and <clears throat> preach verse by verse. I love when I have the opportunity to preach more than one time at a particular place because you can take a larger section of Scripture and you can, you can work through that. I believe there's some, some clear advantages to preaching book by book through different books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. One, you, you never have to wonder where you're going to go the next week. It's already kind of there. You're just picking up where you left off. There's a synergy that comes in your study as you continue to dig deeper into the context and the background and what the writer was trying to accomplish in the actual writing of the book. And, and as you build on the precepts upon precepts that are found in that particular, that particular book of the Bible, there's, there's just certain synergy that's created. It, it's also a, a great gift to your music guys, and they know where we're going to go with worship, and they don't have to guess what's the preacher going to talk about this week. They can kind of read ahead and, and see that. I also think that it, it just gives you, um, it, it gives you a level of protection. Somebody can't say, well, the preacher knew I was doing this and got mad and wanted to preach against what I was, what I was doing. It, it also helps you to um, make sure you don't wimp out and skip the hard texts. You'll cover every issue that the Bible deals with. And I, somebody asked, what do you do when you finish all 66 books? Well, you start over and you preach again because I promise you missed something that you should have said the first time. The problem with this passion is when you get one chance to preach in chapel, you want to preach a whole book. Well, I can't preach a whole book because I'm preaching out of Romans. But then I said, well, I think... I can preach a whole chapter. Which chapter would you think would be the hardest to preach in one sermon? I, I'm going to try to preach chapter 8. <laughs> I was studying, and I was looking, and I was, I want to preach this part of chapter 8. And I thought, man, I can't preach chapter 8 and not go to here in chapter 8. And then by the time it got to a place where I figured out what I wanted to preach, it was all of chapter 8. We live on the fallen side of eternity. Life is tough. And I'll, I'll stand before you with all the honesty that I can, can give you and, and just share with you that as far as how I see what others have gone through, I really have faced very little, minimal trial in my life. God has, for some reason, seen to give provision that my wife and I, and, and, and even before we were married, I, I really experienced very little pain or, or, or trial or struggle. I, I guess the, the greatest thing that I went through as far as what seemed like pain at the time was a, a broken engagement, but I thank God for it, amen? It was a, it was a blessing. I won't quote a Garth Brooks song now, but you know, you just, you just, you realize. But there are going to be times... That trials come. We are not promised that every day will be without struggle. Actually, we're promised the opposite. That struggles will come. For some of you right now, you're in struggles deeper than I have ever faced. And I am assured that there are going to be days that I will be in struggles that are greater than what I have seen to this point. And in those days, I believe we need what I call an anchor text. 
Sometimes we just need to clear our agenda, get in the Word of God, not just for that brief quiet time, but I'm talking about get down into it and remember the promises of God. That no matter what we face, He is able. We need to be encouraged by His Word. I believe in chapter 8 there are at least, (laughs) at least six promises that I want us to be reminded of this morning. I think there's probably six dozen. (laughs) We want to talk about six. Here's the first promise. The debt we owed has been paid. The debt we owe has been paid. Look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The debt we owed has been paid. If you look back and reread chapter 7, Paul is talking about the battle that's raging between sin and grace, between the flesh and the spirit. And if you look at verse 24, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body and death? Then he says this, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The debt's been paid. We owed it. Despite what we deserve, he says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He did not say there's not things that are condemnable. It's not that we don't deserve condemnation. It's because of his grace. Listen to Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. We deserve condemnation, but the debt has been paid. Despite what we deserve, God forgives us. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Romans 10.9, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Romans 10.13, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The debt that we owed has been paid. That's his promise. What he says In the text, you see condemnation comes from the law. Romans 3.20 says this, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But what the law could not accomplish, Christ has accomplished. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The debt has been paid. The law condemns us. Sin condemns us. But what it says in verse 4, this this is shouting ground, even if you're not Tommy Kiker, this is your shouting ground. The law condemns us, sin condemns us, but the text says he condemned sin. The debt has been paid. There's a battle 
that rages. Continue just reading through the text there for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Flesh and spirit. Flesh and spirit. You're going to see these things. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit the things of the spirit to be carnally minded in death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can be so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God but you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ he is not his and if Christ is in you the body is dead because of sin but the spirit is life because of righteousness but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What is the source of our power? It is not our flesh, it is his spirit. 19 times in the chapter, the Spirit of God, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. That is our power. Can I just remind us the promise that the debt that we did owe has been paid. That's the first promise. But even in the midst of that promise, there still is that battle that rages between the flesh and between the spirit. We've been redeemed by the spirit. We've been delivered by the spirit. We've been sealed by the spirit, but we have not yet. It's an already, but not yet. And there's this battle that is raging. But in that battle, the second promise is this. The war is won, and our position has been secured. The debt that we owed has been paid, yet a battle still rages. But even though that battle rages, the war is won, and our position has been secured. Now, that was a little trick how you preach a whole chapter. You just read about 10 verses and get to your next point. <laughs> Look at verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put the death, the deeds of the body, you will live. Listen to this now. Here's the promise. Our position is secured. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Galatians 4, 7 puts it this way. We are no longer slaves to sin, but sons of God. You were a slave to sin. The Bible tells us in other places we were enemies of God, but we have been adopted and been made children of God. Even though we don't deserve it, our debt's been paid. Even though the battle still rages, the war is won, and our position is secure. We are sons of God because of the declaration of God. He says it. We are sons of God. We are sons of God because we cry out, Abba, Father, what it says in the text, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. I don't know what kind of earthly daddy you have or had. I have one that's a man of God. 
He's now a so-called retired pastor. I'll believe that when I see it flesh out in the next few years. <laughs> he loved us. He took care of our family. And the love that I know he has for me and my mom and my sisters and our entire family is, is vast. But it pales in comparison to the love that our Heavenly Father has for us. Our position has been secured. God has stated he has declared that we're sons of God. We cry out in our spirit of a father because we're children of God. And then the text tells us, listen to this, do you have this? For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cried, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. His spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. What's that look like? I think it looks like the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that as I walk filled with the Spirit, I will display the fruit of the Spirit. I kind of think there's something else that you can maybe relate it to. It's just something that wells up inside of you every once in a while, and you just want to shout. There was a preacher that I came across in my study, and it was mentioned in one of the commentaries, and I started kind of, I had never heard of this guy before, and he's not well known, but he's known to, in certain circles, as a guy by the name of Billy Bray. He was a, a mid-19th century preacher in, in, um, in, in England, and he was a coal miner, and he almost died in the coal mines, and he, he had been a drunkard and, and just involved in all kinds of, uh, you know, just earthly living, and he got saved, and he got saved, and then he never got over getting saved. You know what I'm talking about? And I read a quote, and I thought, man, I like that quote. I read a couple quotes, and I liked all of them, but this was my favorite. He, he, he would tell people, he said, he said they, said, well, they would ask him, why would he act like he acts? Why would he do like he, he would do? Why would he preach like he preached? He would break out in dancing and in singing. I have never danced in chapel. I'm just saying I heard one time there was a Congo line, but I wasn't in it. <laughs> but he said this. He says, I'm walking down the street, <laughs> and I pick up one foot, and it seems to shout glory. <laughs> and I pick up the other one, and it shouts amen. And they just keep doing it all the time that I'm walking. <laughs> now, let me just tell you this. Listen, if you're a child of God, there ought to be some times. Not that you have to act like me, but it wells up. And you can't help but give praise. It may not be an audible shout. It may not even be visible to anybody else. But it is as real as the air we breathe. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The first promise, the debt that we owed has been paid. The second promise, even though there's a battle raging, the war is won, and our position has been secured. The third promise is this. Our position is eternal, but our circumstances are temporal. You know, you would think if you had a heavenly father, a daddy that could beat up every other daddy, you'd never have any problems. 
You remember in school, you'd, you'd say, well, my daddy does this, my daddy does this, and, and then you'd say, well, my daddy could beat up your daddy. My daddy didn't like me telling other kids that because some of them had bigger daddies than mine, you know. But <laughs> God's our father. He's got this. But we live in a fallen world that I believe is decaying more every day. And we are in the midst of those circumstances. But my friends, they are temporary. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, I'll just, I'll just tell you, I like the King James translation better because it says, I reckon. <laughs> A country boy from North Carolina just likes to say, I reckon. I reckon that these present sufferings are not worthy to even be compared to the glory that shall be revealed to us. Listen, it's a, it's a calculating term. It's an accounting term that if you're to weigh up all that you will go through in this life, everything that you would face, you put it on one side. I'm just telling you, that very first glimpse of Jesus, it will be worth it all. I look around this room, I see men and women that have gone through things that I could not imagine that I know that outside of the Holy Spirit of God I am not ready for and I do not want to face, but I promise you that whatever we have experienced, when we see Jesus, it will not compare. That first glimpse, it all will fade away and then we've got all of eternity to worship, to praise, to serve, to labor. For our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there's an earnest expectation. Look at verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You see, when man fell, I believe that creation had to fall because God maintains his order. Creation didn't desire to be put into this futility. It didn't desire to be made less than what God intended it to be, but it had no choice because it had to stay and maintain the order that God had established. That's why you see in, in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains until, together until now. Creation wants to be made what God intended creation to be. But for a temporary time, it, it will not Paul uses similar language in 2 Corinthians. Some of you may call it 2 Corinthians. That's fine. You're able to do that. <laughs> I promise I did not put a 2 Corinthians reference in there so that I could make that joke, but I just couldn't pass it up. <laughs> well, glory. Oh, Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There's going to be trials in this life. They are temporary. There's going to be glory in heaven. It is eternal. Peter put it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy 
has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory." There are trials, and some of you are going through the thick of them, and if you're not, you and I will, but they are temporary, and his glory is eternal. Our position is eternal. Our circumstances are temporary. Creation groans out. Genesis 3:17 says it is cursed as the ground because of Adam and Eve's sin. It was subjected to futility, not by its own, but by one who knew that he would restore it. Look at the text there in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans. Look at verse 21. Because the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And can I just remind you that God's hope is not some possible thing. God's hope is a certainty. Not only does creation groan, but we groan. Look at verse 23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, for we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. You see there in the text, three times there's this eager expectation, this eager waiting, this almost up on your tiptoes, just kind of looking out to see if just maybe today's the day that will be completely restored, that creation will be restored, and that we'll be restored and be made what God intends for us to be. Look there in, in, verse, in verse 19, it's in the text, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits. Verse 23, not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. What's that mean? We've got a taste of what it's like to glorify and worship Jesus. We long for the wholeness of it, eagerly waiting for the adoption of our body. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait once, twice, three times the same expression. There ought to be an eagerness in our hearts and in our minds for the coming of Christ. We've lost that eagerness. The only people who ever sing about it anymore are Dr. Queen's favorite Southern Gospel groups. When's the last time you thought about what if Jesus came back today? Some of y'all post-trippers are going to have to grab my ankles. <laughs> Do you have an eager expectation? Can I just remind us, this is not our home. This is not our permanent state. This is the journey 
There ought to be an eager expectation, but not just for the return of Christ, but for the power of Christ and for the presence of Christ. Why do we settle for just a little bit? May we long for the greatness and the power and the wholeness of Christ in all things, not just going through the motions, but eagerly expecting, awaiting that when we show up to worship Jesus, he shows up and then he changes things. Things are not like they were before the fall, but not not like they're going to be after Jesus restores it either. The promise is this, that our position is eternal, but our circumstances are temporary. The debt that we owed has been paid, and though the battle still rages, the war is won and our position is secured, but the, the fourth promise is this. In the reality of these circumstances, we have the greatest of help. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. Just take note of that. Now he searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints. So we have the the Holy Spirit of God works for us and, and with us and in our stead. Our hope is more than an expectation. It is the reality of a very present help in time of trouble. The Spirit intercedes. We have a comforter, a helper. The consistent source of power and strength is the is the Spirit. But look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? I believe this is a reference to the Father. We not only have the Spirit that intercedes for us, but the Father, he is, he is for us, who can be against us. He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The Spirit is interceding for us. The Father is, is working for us. And then look at verse 34. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ. Jesus is interceding for us. We have the greatest help. The Trinitarian God is working on our behalf, not because we deserve it, but for his glory. God the Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, we have the greatest help. Jesus makes continual intercession for us. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. The one that judges our sin is the one who knows the price has been paid. My daughter mentioned the other day that she wants to be a lawyer when she grows up. She's a negotiator, that's for sure. And and my wife said, she asked her, what kind of lawyer? And she said, I want to be a prosecutor because I don't want to defend those sorry rascals. I don't know if she used that exact (laughs) wording, but it was probably close. But we have a defense attorney, and though we are not defensible, he can defend us through the work of the gospel. Aren't you glad he intercedes for us? We have the the greatest help, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Well, here's the fifth promise. God is on his throne. And he completes his plans. God is on his throne and he completes his plans. We are left in these circumstances. We have the greatest of hope, but God is not done yet. Look at verse 28. This is where I started to want to 
try to preach the message, and I had to go all the way back to verse 1, so I finally got to what I wanted to preach. Amen? It's good. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God is on his throne, and he completes his plans. Look at verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, we got to be careful here, because if we don't watch it, we'll be so determined to try to make sure everybody else knows we figured out exactly how God works, that we'll miss the main point of what's being said here. That God is working, and he's conforming us to the image of Jesus. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called, whom he called, those he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. I love that that's in the past tense, that it's already. It's not yet, but it's already. He is not done. He is on his throne, and he completes his plans. You ever have trouble with that verse in verse 28, though? That all things work together for good. It does not say all things are good, right? We know that to be certain because there's all kinds of evil around us. But it does promise us that all things work together for good. The idea of synergy there is in the Word. And here's a definition of, of synergy. The working together of various elements to produce an effect greater than and often completely different from the sum of each element acting separately. God can take all these different ingredients, all these different pieces, and he can make it turn out to be something that was nothing like the ingredients, but it is much greater than those individual things. Everything that has happened in your life to this point and everything that will happen from this point forward, God is working together to make you what he would have you to be. You've heard the illustration from this text, the making of a cake, right? You've heard that. If you, I like cake. Don't say amen. <laughs> you can look at me and see that I like cake too much at times. I'm working on it. Liking cake more. That's what I'm working on. <laughs> but if you make a cake from scratch, you've got all these ingredients, your flour. And let's just say you're making a chocolate cake. And those ingredients don't taste like that cake. And there's one in there that there should be a warning label on for kids if you're making a chocolate cake. How many of y'all remember the little brown and silver canister that said Hershey's unsweetened cocoa? That's just wrong. <laughs> it looks like a Hershey's bar. I didn't know what unsweetened meant. So I took a spoon. This wasn't last week. This was when I was a child. <laughs> that stuff is nasty. But you take that and you whip it up in there with all that other stuff, you've got chocolate cake. Do you hear what I'm saying? <laughs> Your life looks like a mess sometimes, and so does mine. I, I, I put it another way. My, my mom cross-stitches. Now, this is a manly illustration. And my mom has a, a cross-stitch on our, well, I guess it's on the new wall. They just moved, so I, I don't know, was it hanging, the one with Jesus and the children? I didn't, it might be in a box somewhere, but she's got it. But when it's hanging, if you were standing about 10 or 15 feet from that cross-stitch, you would think it was a painting or a picture. I'm talking, there is so much detail in that thing. I, I cross-stitched Tom one time for a bookmark from my mom because Tommy would have took way too long. <laughs> this stuff is not easy. 
But from the front side, you see that thing, and it's just an amazing picture of Jesus, and the children are coming up, sitting on his lap, probably 20 or 30 different colors and all that thing. What happens if you turn that cross stitch over and look at the back of it? It is a knotted mess. We see the knotted mess. Jesus sees the children coming up in his lap. He is working it, it together for your good and his glory. That's his promise. God is on the throne and he completes his plans. The debt we owed has been paid. Though the battle rages, the war has been won and our position is secure. Though our position is eternal, our circumstances are temporary. Promise number four, we have the greatest of help in these circumstances. God is on his throne and he completes his plans. Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it into the day of Jesus Christ. Be reminded of verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? There's too great of an investment for him to stop now. He will complete the task. But here's the final promise that I will bring from the text. Again, there's so many others. The one who has us is able to keep that which is his. The one that has us is able to keep that which is his. Verse 35. You know, I was, I was tempted, but I thought, well, that would be kind of showy or whatever, and I didn't want anybody to think I was trying to be showy. If I would have stood up and just read this chapter, it would have been as good as any sermon we've ever heard in this place. Can I encourage you? When you're in those doldrums, when you're in those fires, get somewhere and read out loud chapter 8 of Romans. And if you don't feel somewhat better when you get to verse 39, come see myself or Dr. Queen or somebody and go ahead and get saved and then you would feel better after you read Romans chapter 8. <laughs> Do you hear me? Because I don't know what you, where, you're, where you're going through, what you're going through or where you're at or what's happening in your life, but I promise you if the Spirit of God dwells up in your life, if He is a part of you, if He dwells in you, if you have been saved and you read through these words, that Spirit will well up inside of you. And if it's one of those sweeter times, it probably won't be any shouting. You'll weep as you rejoice over the promises of God. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The debt that we owe has been paid. For the law of the spirit of the life of Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. 
For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren... We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many are as led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For that, why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose for whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness? or peril or sword as it is written for your sake we are killed all day long we are counted as sheep for the slaughter yet in all these things 
we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is his promise. Anchor your soul to his promises. He will not let go. Father, in the name of Jesus, in light of your word, in light of your promises, I am convinced we have only one proper response. And that's to do as Paul admonished us and exhorted the reader to do in Romans 12, verse 1. When he wrote, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for this is our reasonable service. Lord, the only right response we can have to your promises is to lay ourselves before you. May we commit afresh and anew that whatever the task Whatever the location, whatever the cost, we are crucified with Christ. We will take up our cross, and we will follow you, and we will trust your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.